You come to this show not to hear about me. I know you come for ideas and commentary. However, in my own personal life, I was just diagnosed with COVID-19. I will start there on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. The alert came on the My Chart app from Prisma Health the, uh, as of this morning. By the way, I'm recording live on... September, I'm sorry, that's how bad the, all the drugs are, I, I'm on are on July, not September, on July 7th, I'm recording the show um, that will go out on Saturday on his radio talk, 91.9, and I got the alert this morning that I am positive for COVID-19. I'm also on the upswing, as in, I was, I was very sick, and I'm on day four now of symptoms, and I'm already getting better. And we won't spend a lot of time on it because there's much to do in the news and around the world of deep thinking, but this has been the biggest story of the year is COVID-19, so I do want to start there and tell you about my experience with it in just one moment. First, my name is Corey Truax. Thank you for listening to The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk 91.9 and 92.9 or wherever you find the podcast. Thank you for doing it. I usually have the show already finished by now, but my voice and my energy level that was the, the lowest thing is I bring a lot of energy to the show, right? I think it's one of the markers of my uh, broadcast persona and even my real life persona is high energy and having COVID-19, I will tell you, saps you of energy. So here's my timeline uh, just in case, well, not just in case, just because uh, if you don't know anyone yet with it, only like 7% of the population has even been tested, I think. And so it's, it's, a small subset of people. Here's how it happened for me. Friday evening, that would have been July the 3rd, I, I, I felt a little lightheaded, but I thought it was pretty normal, and I woke up feeling fine and went through my normal day until about noon on July 4th. It was lightheaded, and then things started to ache. And those of you that know me, I'm deep into fitness, when things ache in me, it's because I had a really good workout, but that's not what this was. This is a different type of full body ache, and it was not from my workout. And then from there, uh, I, could, I could not regulate my body temperature. I was either super hot or I was very chilly and needed to be under blankets. And this, so from the chills, excuse me, from the aches to the chills and then checking my temperature, then had a fever, headache started, and that what happened Saturday. It persisted through Sunday. I obviously didn't go to church on Sunday. That that hurt me. Um, that all those con- continued through Monday. Oh, by the way, Sunday, I called Prisma Health, gave them my symptoms, called their COVID hotline, and they asked me to go to one of these drive-through testing centers. I did. I was in line for about two hours. They're very well run. They put a a car line that goes to the bottom of a parking garage. So you drive to the top work your way down and you go and they test you at the bottom that was Sunday around two I got the test and then Tuesday morning um, I got my got my result as positive so what a 2020 Um, I'm I'm, again already on the upswing here we are uh, sort of started on Saturday so Saturday Sunday Monday by Tuesday I'm starting my way back you might hear a little bit still of the congestion. That was actually the last thing. The last thing that started was 
chest and sinus congestion. So I'm coming out of it and I will admit, I do not feel like doing this show, but I, uh, it's, it's a unique experience, I guess, and worth, worth sharing. Here's a couple of things I think I can learn. Uh, my, my large, my, my broad opinion on this hasn't changed too much in that I think I'm even a testament to what I, what I think that I thought was true. Vast majority of people will contract COVID-19 and then get better. That's what, this is why I so resented Governor Cuomo for equating COVID-19 to death itself. But in maybe overreacting to those that are treating it like death itself, I didn't recognize that this thing really is terrible. It, it hurts, man. Like, it's a, there's a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. And I'm in, I mean, I don't want to be a, like an arrogant jerk, but I'm in something close to peak physical condition. And it wrecked me. And so when I think about someone who already has a heart issue, I think about somebody who already has asthma. I think about older people and this kind of pain with that group. This thing is hard. And so it, it deserves our, it, it deserves, I, 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 guys, I'm, for real, I'm on, um, I'm on some kind of flu med, and so my, my vocabulary is going to be hindered over this hour. Our vigilance, there's found the word, vigilance. To not try to spread it to others, that was immediately my concern, is not me, I'm, not because I'm so selfless, we all know I'm not selfless, but I wanted to make sure I wasn't part of the problem in spreading it to others. So we should be vigilant against it. And then it occurred to me this. If enough people who are high risk or aren't in the right physical condition contract these symptoms, they are going to end up in a hospital unlike me. And that's going to cause problems for other people who need to go to hospitals. For bed space for those with an appendicitis, for bed space for those that have an an abscess, abscess tooth that gets infected and goes wrong for those with a pancreatitis, like the random things that happen to people, they need to go to the hospital. If we do this too much, COVID is, if by this, I mean, continue to spread it. We're going to fill up our hospitals to the extent that we can't care, care for everybody. And so uh, that's my, that's my word on COVID. I have it. I'm going to try to do this show. What, what's great about a pre-recorded show is if I need to take a break, I'm going to take it. But all right. So there we go. Um, your humble host. That's not accurate. Your host. Your host has contracted COVID-19, have no idea how I did it. And now I, according to Prisma Health, I'm supposed to stay indoors for at least 10 days from when my first got my symptoms, 72 hours from when my fever goes down, and my symptoms have to be improving. All three of those things have to be true before I'm allowed to leave the house. And because I, th- I think it is incumbent upon me to be a uh, responsible citizen and a someone who loves my neighbor as myself i am going to follow those orders all right let's uh let's move on to the actual news of the week that's my covid story last week i did a bit of a america rah-rah on this show and put out a video that got decent response on facebook that tried to make the case that while there are people who struggle celebrating independence day because of some of the history of our country, the United States is still worth celebrating because we've done so much for human history. And the standard that gets set up, it seems, by the modern left in leftist wokeism 
is an unreasonable standard. It makes it seem as if the only moral people who have ever lived, lived right now. Even 10 years ago, that generation was deeply immoral, and we should all be so lucky that we live right now, the only time in human history, the only place in human history that have had any decent human beings. That's the paradigm it sets up, and it's unreasonable. And we're starting to see, I think, that level of unreasonableness affect its movement. I want to give you an example, and we will flesh this out over the show. On Memorial Day, George Floyd is murdered by an officer. uh, Officer Chauvin, I think his name was. And there was a real movement for reform about police brutality and the methods police use. Very soon after that, there was the Breonna Taylor situation, and we started talking about ending no-knock warrants, the idea of uh, qualified immunity, that's it, the idea of ending that so that when cops misbehave, they can have to pay some kind of recompense to the family that they hurt. All those good ideas started happening. And then this unreasonable leftist wokeism, this cult, it's a religion, co-opted a movement that was about police brutality and started using the movement, standing on the body of George Floyd, standing on the body of Breonna Taylor, started trying to do other things, started operating in America hate, that America is the chief evil, that it's to its core rotten, that its history and its symbols must be torn down. They were unable to focus on the thing where there was actual unity. At large, amongst conservatives, liberals, secularists, and and, and traditionalists, religious types, there was a great deal of unity around the idea that the police have too much power and they're mistreating people, in, in particular people of color, but mistreating a lot of people, and that needs reform. And then this leftist cult got a hold of that movement and started using it for its other purposes and ruined it. And now you're not going to get much of anything. They're not going to, you got a little bit from some of these cities, banned some chokeholds, a couple localities ended, uh, what am I thinking of, the immunity, qualified immunity. But big systemic change where there was a unified movement around it, you're not getting anything big. Why? Because leftist cultist, cultic wokeism ruined it with its unreasonable view of American history and its unreasonable standard for the American people throughout history. And it's, it's, I almost give this as a warning that I'm starting to see this pop up in this presidential campaign that's going to be ending in about four months. You know what feels so weird to me is I, I like accidentally was a, a very accurate prophet. If you go back and listen to some of my shows during the Democratic primary and before, because I, I, I'm not obviously not voting for Joe Biden, I'm not voting for Donald Trump, but I do, I do political commentary from time to time. I, I like to try to keep it on the, the spiritual, and I'll do that today too. But I remember saying some version of, basically all the Democrats have to do is put up someone who isn't insane, if they can just not be insane or corrupt, that's going to be enough to beat Donald Trump. Because the reality is he only won by, in total, about 80,000 votes that were, uh, that were around Detroit, Michigan, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and in Wisconsin, that is, 
I forgot the name of that city, Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He lost by about 80,000 African-American votes. That's what he, excuse me, won. He won because around those cities, a bunch of African-Americans who showed up for, Obama didn't show up for Hillary. And so all you need is a non-crazy person and a non-corrupt person, and he's beatable. And what is actually happening is the left is going full, full weight, putting the pedal on that right, putting all their weight on the right pedal and saying, no, full crazy. We're going to go full crazy. America to its core is evil. Its structure, its history, its symbols, they all have to be torn down. And what you're going to get is an equal and opposite reaction. If you go that far left crazy, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction. And we don't have a president who would even try to tamp down those kind of tensions. We actually have a president who would rather stoke them. And that's something I want to continue illustrating for you when we come back from this break. That's not who I want to be. I want to be a voice that's, that is unifying. I want to be one that builds bridges. If you're listening, I want you to be someone who builds bridges. That's part of what we want on this show. But that's not where we are culturally, and I want to illustrate to you that it's happening in this religious war we've all been talking about, that I've been talking about, a leftist wokeism. It's a religion trying to be theocratic, to, to, uh, to impose its values on the rest of us. And I want to illustrate that to you. We'll do some other things today as well. When you come back for the rest of the COVID-19 infected version of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can follow along right now. Not a lot of content out there for me because... Everything takes so much energy when you are COVID-19 infected, as I am. So uh, follow along, and eventually I'll get more active back on social media as well. Let's do this. What I want to prove to you, what I want to illustrate for you, is that while we, what we need is some national cohesion, some kind of national unity, there is an insurgent religion in the country, leftist wokeism, that's not allowing for that. I also think that religion is a, it's a small group. They're very, very loud. They're very influential. But it is a small group ultimately. So I don't want to make liberalism or leftism or democratism at large seem this way. It is a small subset that have, have glommed onto and found meaning in this worldview. That's actually the... That's the deeper issue here. Remember, that's what we do on the show, right? There's, there's a, events, there's news, and then there's ideas. And the ideas are what undergird the events in the news. Well, the idea underneath this leftist wokeism is a crisis of meaning. We had for so long in our culture that you can find meaning in what you do for others. So that, that very literally might just be might mean being a productive citizen, having a family, getting married, having kids, going to work, being a good neighbor, being responsible for how you and your life benefits others. There was some meaning in that, even if it didn't come from a particularly religious perspective. But around 30 or 40 years ago, as the cultural ethic became self-actualization, the the way in which you get actualized, you find meaning, is not what you do for others. It's whether or not you were true to yourself. And so when we shut down the 
the institutions or we diminish the institutions where people found meaning, where people found meaning as a member of their own family, as a member of their faith, as a member of their, their neighborhood, their city, or their state, the, the human heart will find some meaning. The human soul will, will go to something to give it a community. And one of the louder ones in the culture has been this leftist wokeism. You can find redemption. You can find community. You can find meaning in, in being a part of this movement of being woke, being being one of the few that really understand all the things going on and how bad America is. And I want to play for you now an illustration of that, of an absolutely unhinged woman. When I say it's a religion, here's what I mean. This, this woman's having a religious experience. She's hysterical, screaming, nothing rational, rational about it. I'll go and play it for you. I'll come back and make that point. So here's the setup. There is a, like a school board type meeting happening through Zoom because of COVID, people aren't meeting in person. And one member of the school board apparently has a, a nephew of some sort, or it's a family member who is a minority child, and the minority child comes up and sits on the lap of this school board member. The school board member is white. And so then there is this minority child sitting on this white person's knee, and this is how a person who's in a cult responds hysterically because their religion demands of them to respond hysterically. It hurts people when they see a white man bouncing a brown baby on their lap and they don't know the context. That is harmful. That makes people cry. It makes people log out of our meetings. They don't come here. They don't come to our meetings and they give me a hard time because I'm not vocal enough and I'm not trying to be a martyr. I'm trying to illustrate to you that you think I'm a, excuse me, you think I'm a social justice warrior and you think I'm being patronizing and I'm getting pressure for not being enough of an advocate. And I take that to heart and that hurts. A couple quick things, I'll let her continue. One, well, of course you're trying to be a martyr. That's sort of what you're saying. And a martyr, by the way, religious term, not always a religious term, but that's, that is its etymology. To, to lose one for the cause. But g get all of the context here. She's hysterically screaming at, a, at another adult over something that's totally non-controversial. I even think of my two nephews who are not, what does it matter? Let's just think, think of some other illustration. I don't want to get too personal of people's lives that aren't my own, but you, just a white guy having a, a, a minority kid on his lap, that hurts people. It makes people cry. Let me be really clear. Those people are insane and need to grow up. I, I, I thought we were in a culture now that has all kinds of mixed families, diversity within, within families. If you see a minority kid on a white person's lap and it causes you emotional distress, one of two things is true. Either you're lying, it doesn't cause you emotional distress and you just want attention, or you're an insane person, you need to grow up. You're a very immature person, you need to grow up. You need to understand how the world, world works. It is not a white guy's fault for a, ch a child in his family that doesn't look like him eth ethnically to put that child on his lap. That's an, that is an objectively moral good thing. And if it upsets you, you are the problem. And so now she says she is not wanting to be a martyr, not martyr or be a social justice warrior, but that's why she's doing what she's doing here. She is projecting this, the, uh, this vision of the opposite of what is true. What is true is she's trying to 
repent and atone for her own white privilege by screaming irrationally and also religious fanatically, religiously fanatically, at this man. It hurts me, and I have to learn to make how to be a better white person. I would like... That's religious language right there. I want to learn... I want to be a better white person. Not a better person, by the way. I want to be a better white person. This is the language of religion. Which I'm not talking about the real one, the real Jesus-following faith. But the language of religion is the language of self-improvement. All of the religions, from Jehovah's Witnesses to Oprahism, all of them are about self-improvement. And then there's Christianity. That's about Jesus doing a revolutionary act in your life, declaring you righteous through his work, and out of that righteousness, then you change. But this is the religion of wokeism as she's trying to make herself a better person. You don't have people telling you that. I would like to know before this meeting adjourns how having my friend's nephew on my lap was hurtful to people and was racist. Can you please explain? So consider the two tones. So a guy named Tom, I would like for someone to explain to me how what I did was racist. Now listen to this woman scream and be hysterical. I've explained it to you. You can uh, Google, you can read a now. book. Read a book. Read Ibram Kendi. Read White Fragility. Read you How to Talk said. to White People. No, no, no it's no, not no. my job to educate you. You're okay. an educated white man right. and you can read a book. My friend. I bet she's really fun at parties. Again, just what a, what a delightful person. And it's, that's the religious fanaticism. She doesn't actually want to help. She doesn't, so it's not my job to educate you. Well, is that, is that not what you're trying to accomplish? What you, what you want to do is make the world better and make sure all of us know that it's really, really bad to put a kid of a different race on your lap. You don't, definitely don't show affection to anyone or any child outside of your own race. It could upset people. But then it's not your job to educate as if there's some kind of Gnostic secret knowledge that you have that no one else is, is, uh, is privy to. This is the language and behavior of religious fanaticism. He's going to educate you. God, that hurts my head. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. There is, there is this leftist wokeism that's behaving in these insane ways. And while they all think they're winning a political battle right now because of polling, one of the, the, the premises I'm trying to get you to understand is they're probably creating the opposite reaction of what they want. Because with COVID the way it's been, the economy coming back, but now starting to, you know, it, it was going great, but kind of suffering. All you needed to do if you wanted to beat Donald Trump was just be normal, look normal compared to him. Look stable compared to him. But these folks will continue to push on a Joe Biden to make him look like that hysterical woman screaming on a Zoom call about a totally non-controversial thing. And if you, I'll go ahead and say it, she seems more crazy than Donald Trump does. And he'll win that. If the election ends up being about who is less crazy, and I think he is crazy. I think we, I think we actually have some cognitive issues, cognitive ability issues with both him and Joe Biden. He will, and, and with him, sometimes it comes out as anger. It comes out as all kinds of things. But if we're comparing her to him, that woman's an insane woman. And the people associated with her ideas shouldn't ever be given power. I want to give you another illustration of this. With Slate. Slate's a big left-wing magazine. And there was a woman who wrote in that said, my ex-husband 
is a and the and the father of our kids. Those are um, this, that are my my ex husband and the father of our children, is a Trump supporter. And uh, I, I I'm not a Trump supporter, and she just wants to know how do I do this? How do I let them let them know their dad isn't a bad person while his ideas are destructive? How can I do that? And so here is what the slate advice columnist would give to this woman. And by, and by the way, here's the answer to that. Um, you don't have to do politics with your kids. Teach them values. Politics is downstream of values. Teach them what your values are, what your morals are, and let that inform the politics. You don't have to talk politics with your kids if you will teach them values. He, uh, I'm going to skip to the second paragraph of this response. So question to Slate. What do I do with my ex-husband who I co-parent my kids with and he's a Trump supporter? Second paragraph says, do your best to emphasize the other things that are good about your ex and the importance of loving him in spite of his values. Be careful, this is a very important sentence, be careful to differentiate between bad politics and bad people, which is expletive, which is bull expletive, but your children can grow up and decide to discard their father for being a deplorable when they are old enough to realize the two cannot be separated. And to, re- to finish the sentence, and that, that idea is a myth white folks have been spreading to the detriment of everyone for far too long. This isn't a here's why daddy sucks thing. It's a why here cons- here's why conservative values are evil thing. The advice given by leftist wokeism, this religion, because it is, it's, it's cultic in how much it demands of you to have fealty to it, th- they have the idea here that bad politics and bad people can't be separated. This, is, this used to be a fundamental value of liberalism. Liberalism would say, you're, at least the liberalism of John F. Kennedy, for that matter, the, I think the liberalism of like a Bill Clinton would have said, yeah, your ideas, we don't like your ideas, but yeah, you're decent people. I even have that idea. Barack Obama's ideas are evil. They hurt people. But he's a decent man. Yeah, he seems to be a good father and seems to be a good husband. Seems to be a decent person. A little dishonest sometimes, but not any more than a typical politician. But his ideas are evil. The, that, that's supposed to be a, funda- a fundamental truth. We can, we can do that. Hey, that person's ideas aren't good, but that doesn't mean they're a bad person. This is specifically saying, no, your, your husband is a bad person because of what he believes. You don't have to tell your kids that. They'll come to that eventually and stop talking to their father. That's the solution. More fatherlessness. That's, that's what's going to be helpful is being estranged from your dad. I would argue, and I think there's lots of evidence to suggest, that the number one problem in America the last century has been the growth of fatherlessness. When you trace all of our issues in educational quality, poverty, healthcare. And then moral and societal disintegration and decline, I think we can find a lot, a lot of correlation and causation to the lack of fathers in homes. And here we have someone on the woke left knowing, or at least saying, if, some, if this man, this father of your children, if he thinks these things, he's evil and he's worthy of being out of your children's lives, they should discard him if he thinks the following things. That is the language of a religious fanatic.
They're not in the cult. They're not in the group, and you got to kick them out. I know I'm, I'm harping on that a lot lately, but I think it's important. It's a very important thing to get across for everybody. I, I would add to it all the language I heard around this Mount Rushmore speech about America being on stolen land and all that. There's a, you know, with religions, one of the things that marks religions is they have an origin story. They have a story on where everyone comes from. They have a purpose story about why life exists and what it's going towards. They have a curse story. Here's what went wrong in the world and why evil exists. And they have a redemption story. Here's how to make it right. And most religions have a, uh, comprise at least those worldviews. And of the leftist wokeism, that's, that's part of what happened in that Mount Rushmore speech where the president went out there is, well, part of the origin story they've told themselves of America is that it's from an, its, its inception evil. That this Lakota tribe, it's, it's their rightful land. When we just look back historically and know the Lakota tribe in 1776, ironically, it was 1776, had just recently taken that land from another group who had taken that land from another group previously. You know, I, I even find folks on the left during that time in leftist wokeism putting out maps during 4th of July, uh, Independence Day, you should know where your land was stolen from. Very cursory, um, very cursory look at history. Those maps are very disputed. If you ask a lot of different native tribes at the time if those maps are accurate, they're all going to have very different opinions on that. At, that, that the myth around Native Americans, the myth, the leftist wokeism, has built up. It very much frustrates me to the extent I think I want to do an entire show on that eventually about everything we know that was happening on this continent and that all that really happened was another tribe called Western Europeans introduced themselves, followed all the same rules that the natives did and happened to conquer because conquering has been the way of human history forever. But in any event, I got to get back to the topic. We have this leftist wokeism origin story of America and what I'm trying to tell those folks is this. You think you're winning right now because of some polling, but this kind of behavior, this, hyster this hysterical, insane America hatred, you might be building a response you're not ready for. Because uh, I'll even give you me, for example. I may not go vote for the president, but seeing this insanity has made me love America more again. I've become more of a patriot, more, in response to this kind of stupidity and insanity and, and immorality that I'm seeing from a woman hysterically screaming at a man for having a minority kid on his lap by folks lying to themselves about the, the origins of America and, and Native Americans all of this, this ins, insane column from Slate basically saying, discard your father if he thinks the wrong things. That's made me more of a patriot. And if it's making me more of a patriot, you need to recognize what that's going to do to the voting patterns of other types of people who are otherwise cold to the president. But look at this alternative as particularly threatening to their way of life because in a lot of ways, it is threatening to their way of life. I'm going to take a break. When I come back, I want to play for you uh, David Platt, one of my favorite pastors, talking about the idea of patriotism. Well, talking a little bit about that. And then I have another thought on patriotism for the Christian. And then if we have time, get this. I want to talk about Calvinism. I know, you're all very excited for that. So come back for the remainder 
of the COVID-19 Infected Edition of The Corey True Act Show. Let's finish strong, Corey Truax Show podcast and radio show listeners. Final segment of the Corey Truax Show here as I battle through my COVID-19 positive results. I'll probably be sharing more of that coming up on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, all that. If you want to follow along, find Corey Truax. We just came off a 4th of July, and that means, or or Independence Day, and that means one of the things that happens in the church world every year that annoys me happened a lot of places, and I saw it all over social media. I saw a lot of churches with their American flags everywhere and singing the national anthem, maybe even saying the Pledge of Allegiance, as if the church is some kind of arm of America. That's actually one of the cool things about the church, is that when you walk into one of Bible believers in America or Mexico or Argentina or Germany— or China, or, or I'm about to say North Korea, I guess you're not walking into one there, or South Korea, or Australia, or Russia, you're walking into an embassy, almost, of another government, of another world. When I walk into Beechwood Church on Sundays, I am now walking into a, a place that at least represents this idea that I'm not from here. I'm now joining with my, my real countrymen, my, my real countrywomen, as I uh, celebrate with them the, the, Lord, the Lord's coming, the, the Lord's second coming, as I celebrate with them His, his, his resurrection, uh, as, we, as we sing and worship together on Sundays. And nevertheless, I got a bunch of church folk. And I, I, I get it where it comes from. I get the tradition of throwing big America parties. And so I just wanted to give two, two words on this. One is, I think it's a good illustration to encourage Christians to treat patriotism, treat love of country, like most Christians have treated alcohol for majority of church history. Which is, the majority of church history has been well, on alcohol. Don't abstain from it. You don't have to be totally abstinent. But be careful. It can get a hold of you. You can become a servant to it. And so don't overindulge. Indulge. If, uh, take part. You have liberty to take part in patriotism. But be wary that it not take a hold of you. And that's what I, I th- same illustration as we would give on alcohol. Yeah, fine. Take part. Be careful. It, it can become quite the powerful master. and something very hard to get away from. And let me, I'll stop there. I just want to give that counsel on patriotism for the Christian. Consider it something that can be dangerous, and it can be good if you will control it. But if patriotism becomes too powerful for you, it'll become a very destructive force. On that, some somewhat something of the same vein, I want to play for you, David Platt. He is now the pastor at a church in Virginia. Um, it's in the DMV area. Uh, D, uh, it's called Washington D.C., Maryland, Virginia. The DMV. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, uh, but he's one of the most prominent. Christian Voices Out There, part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he recently talked about how politics now informs religion more than religion informs politics. I thought it was quite insightful. I'm going to play that for you right now. Here is David Platt. What's interesting, the conventional view has been that people's religion drives their politics. 
Like faith, church life, drives political views. But there's actually significant research now that says this conventional view is not true. That in our culture, increasingly so, politics actually drives religion. Two big university studies done on this that I've read specifically found that rising generations in our country are choosing their political position, and then that is determining what kind of church they're a part of. Haven't we seen that this is true? This goes back to something I've already said in the show previously, and it's been a theme of mine. As we diminished religion in the country, that doesn't change the human heart. It doesn't change the human soul. Our need to be a part of something, our natural need to feel like we accomplished something, that are, we're going to make a mark on the earth. And for a generation of Americans, when that was, I'm going to be a good father, husband, raise a family, uh, leave my neighborhood better than I found it, or maybe those more driven towards full-time ministry, I'm going to take the gospel where it's never been, I'm going to be an active church member and see the church grow in my, my, my area, as that diminished, the human heart still says, I've got to do something, accomplish something, be a part of something. And so that ends up being politics becomes a master and says, well, come be a part of politics. Come be a part of this party. Come be a part of this ideology. You'll find meaning in it. And then church life is subjugated to political life. Or not a part of. Many are choosing not to be a part of church. So instead of religious beliefs driving politics, politics are actually driving religious beliefs. One study across a variety of churches found that very few people attend church services with other Bible-believing Christians who hold different political views than them. So of course, many people who don't believe the Bible are going to have very different political views. But this is talking about people who believe the Bible and have different views. The bottom line is, if people were taking the Bible first as the unifying factor, it wouldn't be so hard to be in a church with someone who thinks a thing differently in politics. I'm not even talking about who they vote for, but just let's go smaller things. In a church, it should be possible that Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians should have in the same room, in total harmony, someone who was totally fine, like me, with Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem, and those that were a little offended by it. Yeah, we're, and we're fine. We're fine together. It should be possible to be in the same room with folks who think there should be some kind of further gun restrictions and, some, and those like me that think gun restrictions are largely ineffective and a bad idea, don't do anything, it just makes the people feel better who want them, but it just doesn't actually affect any outcome. Yeah, we're fine. We can all be fine together because we're unified about something else. But what we're finding is the politics drives on what ends up being an inauthentic faith instead of authentic faith driving towards, towards the politics. And that's not good. This is, uh, that, that, is a, that is an idol that will fail you if politics ends up being what drives you. All right, so that is, all I think, all I wanted to do there. But who knows? My brain is not exactly at full, um, full capacity here. This is what I want to do next, maybe till the end of the show. There is this thing I've mentioned before, out on the internet uh, called IFB Preacher Clips. And it's, it's clips of preachers and pastors from independent fundamental Baptist pastors or preachers, if you can call them that, and how I grew up. And I am addicted to it still. 
I listen to, I, I watch these clips all the time. And I want to play one for you because I, because I forgot this. I forgot that one of the independent fundamental Baptist things was being really anti-Calvinist um, as like a, like they're outside the faith. Like the, uh, I should probably give some background here. So here are two views of something called soteriology. Soteriology is how does one become redeemed? How does one become saved? Here's two views of soteriology that are inside Christianity. So people can have these two views and they're both can be brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? There are those, like me, who would be called Calvinists, who believe that salvation is a work of the Lord and only of the Lord, that the only part, as John Edwards, I think John Edwards is the one who said this, the only part of my salvation that I contributed to was the sin that made it necessary. And then by the full grace of God, I was given the gift of faith, and that is where salvation comes. And then there are those, you can call them, you can call them synergists, you can call them Arminians, that believe that mankind has some key role to play in his or her own redemption. Both of those views are inside orthodoxy. We don't have to treat each other poorly. We can argue against each other, but as brothers and sisters, we're not, we're not outside of orthodoxy. It would be hard to be in the same church with folks, or at least be in the same church with, a, a, I guess, a pastor and a teaching team that think differently. Not impossible, but hard, knowing that that's going to sometimes come up. But inside independent fundamental Baptist circles, that's not the view. It's, the view is not that Calvinism and synergism or Arminianism can coexist. They would say, people like me, Calvinism's outside the faith. And so I want to play for you about two minutes of a clip from a preacher named Gerald Fielder talking about this. And I just want to make some simple points about this controversy that has taken up a many of hours and hours of talk in Christian dorm rooms to the middle of the night for generations. Here is evangelist Gerald Fielder. I want to talk to you about a very controversial subject that has infected, affected, and afflicted lots of churches these days. Uh, some of you may have, uh, may be familiar with it. Some of you may not. But I want to talk to you about the subject of Calvinism. And before I ask you to turn in your Bible to any scriptures, I want to share some Bible verses with you that in themselves refute, effectively refute, the weird, bizarre teachings of a man by the name of John Calvin. Uh-oh. You know what you're about to get? Proof texting. I'm now going to share with you some random verses taken out of context, cherry-picked to prove my point. Tell me about it, Gerald Fielder. First of all, let's start with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3:18, he that believed on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. First Timothy 2, 4, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. First Timothy 2, 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Hebrews 2, 9, but we see Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he with the grace of God should taste death for every man. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise to some in count slackness, 
but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, those verses in themselves should satisfy any inquisitive mind. Oh, should it? Should it, bud? All right. Just a couple quick things there. I, I do laugh at it. I do demean it because it's so, it is such an, uh, it's such an unintellectual thing to do. The idea of just reading off a bunch of verses as making some kind of case for your, your systematic theology over something. Here's why it doesn't work. Here's, I guess, several reasons. Because I can do the same thing. Watch me do it. Uh, I guess I'm going to now my memory and with these, all this stuff in my blood flow. Uh, what's, I should start with, um, in, it's Ephesians 10, um, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. I think it starts. And in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything to the purpose of his will. That's Ephesians. Uh, Romans 8 would say, uh, we know all things work together for good to those who love and who have been called according to his purpose. He foreknew and he also predestined them to be conformed to the uh, image of his son. Like It's just a game that I can play too. I can go to John 6 and John 6 will do the thing with Jesus. Uh, only those who the Father has given me or will I get? So the Father is giving, it's not the person doing the choosing. Um, I think it's over in, oh, that's got to be Romans, probably Romans 9, uh, I think, where he lays out that, fa- basically, what, what is the potter, and what does the clay say to the potter? Because we are the clay, what do we say to the potter if he makes, he makes some clay for one purpose and some clay for another? Uh, I think it even says in, I'm right, yeah, Romans 9, uh, God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and he hardens whoever he hardens. And so to this evangelist preacher guy, yeah, I hear you. You can quote a bunch of verses, and I can too. So then, here's what we have to do. Grow up. It's one of my big themes on the show. We've got to grow up and do some more systematic work. I would even, just to poke some holes in the verses that he... Uh, this is, actually, this is actually how I became, I think, a Calvinist. Because I didn't grow up as one. I grew up in a world that said the Calvinists are probably all going to hell. So here's something that started to, started to occur to me, and it's partly because I am pedantic. I'm very particular about words. It's, it's gotten me into some trouble over the years that in arguments I will say to people, yeah, I'm right because words have definitions, all right? And you're not using the proper definitions of the words you're using. And so it started to occur to me like John 3, 16, as he quoted, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then the, the next verse is that he gave his life for the world. Well, not all the world's going to be saved. So I don't think that makes any, any sense. He obviously did not give his life for the world because not all the world will be redeemed. The one in First Timothy, I think he quoted, that God is not willing that any should perish. Well, there are a bunch of people perishing, okay? There's a lot of people are going to end up in eternity in hell. So why is he not wi- why is he not willing? What do you mean he's not willing? That doesn't make any sense. He's, he quoted there in Hebrews uh, that he tastes death for every man, but did he? Is every man going to be redeemed, or did he taste death for those that would be redeemed? Because if you're telling me he paid the he paid the price for every man, 
and woman, every man and woman is going to spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So even in the, the ones that he rapid fire quoted there, you got some things to explain. Because those sound like universalism. Those sound like Jesus died for the world, and now you've made it to the point that that, that redemption applies to every human being that's ever lived. So you got to deal with that. So all I'm trying to illustrate is this. Proof texting is a terrible idea, um, and it's, it's just an immature way to be. So we should all be more curious and more thorough in our Bible study, more thorough in our Bible reading, than to allow these types of things, these rapid-fire proof texting, to prove any given thing uh, to us theologically. We need to be like Bereans, the, the Bible says in Acts, I don't remember, 13, 14, somewhere in there. Uh, Paul goes into this city, Berea, and he commends them for being folks who would hear Paul teach and then they would go search it out themselves. They'd be curious themselves because they wanted to get into the Word and learn from the Scripture, not just the teacher of the Scripture. And that's, it's, it's a core part of Christianity, especially that came, or at least found its resurgence in the Reformation, that you don't need doctrine to come down on high for you. That whoever you are listening right now, you have, if you are redeemed, you have the Holy Spirit who will illuminate Scripture for you, and you have the cognitive and intellectual ability to go do the work for yourself. All right, so I think this is the, it might be the first time I've ever said on the show out loud that I'm a Calvinist. A lot of you that know me personally know that. So I actually would not mind over the coming weeks if any of you have anti-Calvinist arguments that you want to send me, I would like to kindly engage with those. I think it would be a good time together. So you can send those to CoreyTruxShow at gmail.com or find me, CoreyTruX, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Podcasters and radio listeners, we did it. I gotta tell you, I'm out of gas. Uh, I'm in the last 20 seconds of this show, and that is all I can give you. Um, so if you want to communicate more, uh, even talk about what's going on with my COVID case, Again, you can find me at those places. And um, I'm about to be trapped inside for a long time, so I'd be glad to talk. Uh, thanks for listening to the Court Show. We'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.